0: in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in
1: your head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. Can't
0: have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head, a podcast about capitalism and mental health. Uh, my name is Max Golding, LMFT, and we also have here, who else? Harriet Fraud, glad to see you. Um, Yeah, so today we are going to be talking to uh, Professor Richard Wolff, a Marxian economist, and he can maybe define what that means. Uh, He's a current professor at the New School in Manhattan, New York, a professor emeritus at University of Massachusetts Amherst, and um, we'll put these links to the websites in the description later if you want to check these out, but you can learn more about his work at democracyatwork.info. And RD Wolf, that's uh, two F's at the end, rdwolf.com. And um, one of the reasons that we have Professor Wolf on today is if we kind of rewind back to maybe a year or so ago when we first started this podcast, and even the way we have the languaging describing our podcast, we have that word capitalism in there. And um, the theme generally is how. You know, how does capitalism impact mental health? And we have the, the bias. You know, we think we're, Harriet and I think that we're right in saying that capitalism's bad for mental health. Um, perhaps it's a tall claim. Uh, maybe it's something that could be debated. But um, something that we never really thoroughly uh, tried to define was the term capitalism. I mean, we've, we've probably done it a few times in different ways, but um, Professor Wolf is, um, I mean, in my mind, if you have not heard of him, you can, there's all kinds of places online you can find him, but I in my mind, he's probably one of the best people to um, to really break this down, uh, yeah. you know, and for like, you know, non, non-academics, non-super intellectual Marxists, he's really good at explaining this kind of stuff, so we wanted to have him on to open that question up, so it's, so, so, the, so the initial question, and Harriet, you can jump in if you want, but just the it's sort of what is capitalism but also there's other terms like we hear capitalism socialism communism marxism um
0: neoliberal is another one thrown around sure neoliberalism
1: understand what are these yeah what all these terms mean uh what are we even talking about when we when we throw these terms into our conversations um uh, yeah that's that's about it that's that's the way i'm framing it unless you have anything else harriet
0: no, I think that's great because we all talk about these, and we none of us have a definition.
1: So it's super to have one. Yeah. So a, who's an expert. So, Professor Wolf, please, please enlighten us. What, uh, what on earth do all these terms mean, and why should we care? And then, and then when we get through these definitions, maybe we can talk about what are the mental health ramifications. Good. You know, what does this mean for for what goes on inside our heads and our emotions and relationships and everything? So we'll see if we get to
2: that yeah i'd love I'd love you to teach me I'm very interested in what the mental health implications are and uh, okay. we'll be interested to learn from from what you talk about. okay <clears throat> first, let me um, comfort you if that's the right word, by saying you shouldn't feel in any way uh, bad that you're a little unclear on what exactly these words mean. One of the major reasons you're unclear is that, there's no agreement about them. That is, these are subjects of enormous debate among people who not only disagree, but have repeatedly over the last century come to blows. I mean, wars over these systems, or in the names of these systems. So it's not a a minor matter. It's not a trivial issue. Uh, Enormous stakes are involved in defining and deciding about these alternative systems. Uh, And that has produced a kind of crazy noise that makes it hard to sort of settle down and figure out what they mean amidst all the contesting and competing uh, efforts to nail it down. So I'm gonna do the best I can, uh, given that I've spent a lifetime teaching this material and and studying it um, to make sense. Uh, in a simple but clear way. So we use words to distinguish different ways of organizing economies. In other words, the economy, and by that I simply mean how we go about producing and distributing goods and services. Human communities do work. They do not simply run around the fields or the woods gathering the food, clothing, and shelter that they need. Long ago, they graduated, if you like, from that stage, thousands of years ago, to their more modern history in which they produce most of what they consume. The food, the clothing, the shelter, the transportation, the education, the medical care, whatever it is, we get together as members of communities Villages, towns, cities, states, nations, whatever, we get together and we produce the means of life for ourselves. And economy simply refers to that part of life that has to do with the production and distribution of the goods and services we consume. And we have noticed, many of us, over the years, over the centuries, the human communities organize the production process differently. And we have come to label the differences so that we can think about them and talk about them. And these labels include words like capitalism, socialism, feudalism, slavery, and others. These are different ways of organizing the production and distribution of goods and services. I'm going to focus on three of those in the present and the past, and then a little bit later I'll get to one that I think is coming in our near future. So first, those of the past. Well, let's start with slavery. Slavery organizes production in an interesting way. Two groups are engaged in a relationship with one another to carry out the process of production. One of them is called a master, and the other one is called a slave. Masters, plural, are given certain positions and roles in this production process, and slaves, plural, are given different roles. In general, the masters, who are a small minority of the people involved in slavery's production system, this minority, the masters, have an interesting role to play, or set of roles to play. They decide what is to be produced by the labor of the slaves. They decide what technology is going to be used, what tools, what equipment, what means, what ideas. They decide where the production is going to occur. And finally, they own and dispose of the output of the labor. The slaves, by contrast, who are the majority, Majority of the people involved are excluded from every one of the decisions I just listed for you. They are excluded from deciding what to produce or how to produce or where to produce or what to do with the output. Indeed, slavery goes one step further and makes the slave the property of the master. In other words, The relationship here is quite stark. The concentration of power, uh, usually accompanied by the concentration of wealth, developed in this system, accrues to one of the two positions, the master, and not to the others, the slaves. Indeed, it is left to the master to determine whether and how much of the output to return to the slave who produced it so that the slave himself or herself can be reproduced. The the master who wants to continue to be a master, of course, has an incentive to distribute some of the output back to the slave because otherwise the slave will die and then this game is over. Let me distinguish that from another system. In Western European history, this system I'm about to describe, feudalism, emerges in the 5th century out of the collapse of slavery, which is what the Roman Empire was built on. In feudalism, the situation is in some ways similar, but in other ways very different, which is why we give it a different name. So I'll start with the difference. The starkest difference is in feudalism, nobody can own anybody else. Nobody is the property of another person the way was as that was normal in slavery. It is absent, it is banned, it is forbidden in feudalism. Instead, we have a system which is in other ways quite similar to slavery. We have a small minority of people who sit at the top of this system. They are called, in Europe at least, lords, L-O-R-D-S, lords. And the mass of people who do the work are called serfs, S-E-R-F-S. The lords and the serfs are the relationship. They constitute the human relations Of production in feudalism and here's how it works there's a ceremony that happens everywhere in feudalism between the Lord person who occupies that position and the serf person because of the gender organization the Lord is in almost invariably a male and likewise the serf is a male and they have a ceremony in which they do something very interesting and notice how different it is from the ownership relationship that is at the core of slavery in this feudal relationship the ceremony involves the mass excuse me the lord swearing swearing for example on a christian bible swearing in europe to love, honor, cherish, and protect the serf. And in turn, the serf basically swears the same thing to the Lord. It will strike some of you as familiar because it is alarmingly close to what we know as the wedding vows, even in our time which gives you an idea of the relationship from which modern wedding vows derive. The serfs do the work. They produce an output like the slaves, but instead of the entire output going to the lord, the way everything the slaves produced went to the master, it doesn't work like that in feudalism. Instead, the serf gets to keep a portion of what the serf produces. The serf gets to keep it, and indeed he then, with his family, consumes that portion. The remainder, that part of his output that he does not get to keep, goes to the Lord. And what the serf gets is basically enough to keep himself and his family functioning and reproducing, The Lord accumulates typically according to how many serfs he has the wealth of this society. The output over and above what is necessary to sustain the workers, the serfs. Okay, now we come to the third system capitalism. And here comes the definition you were interested in. Capitalism is again like but also unlike the other two systems. And I'll begin with what distinguishes it. In capitalism, nobody belongs to anybody else. There is no ownership in human beings. So it's starkly different from slavery. And likewise, there is no ceremony sanctified by the church which is what happened in european feudalism there is no ceremony in which one person swears to love honor cherish or anything else the other instead in capitalism the human relationship is radically different it's a contract it's a voluntarily entered deal in which one person says I will give you my capacity to work 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, every week. And the other person says, yes, I want that. And in exchange, I'm going to give you something we call a wage or a salary. In other words, it's a market exchange something that didn't happen between lord and serf and something that never happened between master and slave. But in capitalism, it's a deal between the two. And now let me explain what's similar. The human relationships, again, as in slavery and feudalism, involve a small minority of people who have the name employer, and a large majority of people who have the name employee. And like slavery and like feudalism, in capitalism, the work is overwhelmingly done by the majority employees, and they produce, like the slave and like the serf, these employees produce more that they give to the employer than what the employer gives to them as a wage or salary. And in that difference is the wealth that is accumulated by the employer class of people and not by the employee class of people. And in case you're wondering about it, in a sense... Everything I've just said, you already know. For example, think of a person, could be yourself, going to look for a job at a local factory or office or store. And you talk with the employer, and the employer explains the work you're going to be asked to do. And then you get to the part about pay. And let's say you and the employer agree that you will be paid, let's say, $20 per hour. You know, even if it hasn't been brought to full consciousness, you know that the employer will only pay you $20 for every hour of your work if the following is true. During the hour that you work, your brains and your muscle add more to what the employer has to sell, the factory employer, the office employer, the store employer. The employer will only pay you the $20 an hour if what you add to what the employer has to sell is worth more than $20. Because if he didn't, if that weren't the case, if your labor added $20 worth of output, which the employer got when he sold the output, he would then have to take the $20, pay you, and there would be nothing in it for him, and he's not going to do that. (laughs) Or to say the same thing in simplest English, the profit that an employer gets is rooted in, is determined by, the difference between the value added by the worker and the value of the wage paid to the worker. And in that way, the employee and the employer are locked in a relationship that is similar to the feudal lord and serf and slavery's master and slave in the sense that the majority of people produce more than they in the end get, and that the extra, what is called surplus in a bunch of theories, is what accrues to the minority that sits at the top of each of these systems. All right, now the last step. Could there be an arrangement that is different from all of these? And the answer is yes, because every one of these systems is alike in yet another way. In every one of them, sooner or later, and by the way, this sometimes took centuries, but sooner or later, the majority, slaves or serfs or employees, began to yearn for something better. That is, they became aware, conscious of the position I've just described, of the inequality built into it, of the injustice built into it. Slaves eventually yearned for a different world. They might have called it, I yearn for freedom, or I yearn to run away, or I yearn to escape. Serfs, eventually came to the same feeling. And employees also come to the same feeling. They yearn for something better. But where slaves called it freedom and where serfs sometimes called it liberty,
0: Hmm.
2: in capitalism... The word that eventually became the dominant word for this kind of yearning, for a different, radically altered system that would position no one in the uh, position of slave or serf or employee, the word became socialism. So the first definition of socialism It is nothing really more specific than a generalized yearning for the employees for a system that would not have them in the level of poverty, in the level of exploitation, in the level of subordination that capitalism assigns to the majority of people in the process of production. So, there have always then been, from the beginning, critics of capitalism who articulated this yearning. I might mention that there were always critics of slavery who articulated one way or another the yearning for freedom. And there were always critics of feudalism who did likewise. Every system has always spawned people who love it, but also people who don't, people who hate it, people who feel victimized by it, and so on. There's nothing unique or weird or strange that this should happen. Indeed, to imagine an economic system without critics would strike me as an utopian or dystopian fantasy. Uh, So the socialists became those who yearned For something fundamentally different. They didn't want capitalism, but they also didn't want feudalism, didn't want to go backward that way. They certainly didn't want slavery. So the question became, what did they want? Now, socialism as an organized self-conscious movement isn't that old. It was an inchoate, vague collection of ideas in the first century or two of modern capitalism before it coalesced into a what we might call a theory or a doctrine. And by the way, the same is true of those who love capitalism. There were lots of inchoate, vague celebrations of capitalism in its first two centuries but they never coalesced into a general uh, celebration, affirmation of it. That was achieved only at the end of the 18th century by a man named Adam Smith, generally looked upon as the father of modern pro-capitalist economics. He and another person, also in, in England at the time, because England was where modern capitalism got its start, a man named David Ricardo, a banker in London, they are generally considered, Smith and Ricardo, the early theorists, self-conscious theorists of a new system, which eventually became called uh, capitalism. But within 50 years of the work of Smith and Ricardo, another theorist arose Uh, He had been born in Germany, but he lived most of his life as a refugee in the same London that Ricardo had lived and worked in. Um, And this fellow, Karl Marx, was the other side of the coin. He was a critic. He was a socialist in the sense that he participated in, shared the yearning for something fundamentally different than, and in his view, better than, capitalism. And so economics, right from the beginning, the late 18th century into the first half of the 19th, that was the time when the formal theorizations of both capitalism viewed by those who loved it and celebrated it, Smith and Ricardo had to contest with the theory, and all the people inspired by it, of Karl Marx, the Marxists, who were critics. And from around 1830 to around 1917, these two groups battled it out theoretically. That is, socialists made criticisms of capitalism. But they did so as critics within a system clearly already fully capitalist. Indeed, in these years, the only time socialists got beyond being critics, critics, by the way, in the university, critics in the church, critics in politics if a socialist political party got going, which in some countries. It did. Critics uh, in journalism, uh, wherever they were. But only for a few weeks in the entirety of the 18th and 19th century did any socialists get beyond being critics within capitalism to actually having a chance to run a society to put their critical ideas to work in fashioning an alternative system. In 1871, in the city of Paris, France, a a little revolution happened. And for a few weeks, the Paris Commune was created, which was run self-consciously by socialists. But that was put down by the French army with the cooperation of the German army. uh, And that's why it only lasted a few weeks And then many of the leaders were executed and the remainder were exiled uh, to a few islands in the neighborhood of Australia, about as far away from France as they could push them. Uh, The first time that socialists had a chance to really run a society is the Russian Revolution of about 100 years ago, 1917 to be precise. Only in the 20th century, literally over the last century, was it possible for socialists to try to put into practice what they had articulated as criticisms of both slavery and feudalism as well as capitalism. And you might think of those as early experiments in socialist economic organization the Soviet Union being the prime example in the 20th century, and the People's Republic of China being a subsequent experiment that learned from but also departed from the Soviet model to develop the modern Chinese experiment. But I I stress, and we can come back to this if you want, that these are early experiments And as the emergence of capitalism out of feudalism in Europe showed, there are lots of experiments that fail before those who've lived through those experiments have figured out what works and what doesn't, what should be built upon, what should be avoided at all costs, and that the socialist experiments of the 20th and 21st centuries Uh, are precisely learning experiences that will eventuate in a socialism uh, that has learned enough to become the global system that capitalism eventually became when it learned the lessons of its early experiments. And let me conclude then with a brief sketch of what the socialist idea has been. The idea is to break from the model of slavery or feudalism or capitalism as follows. No dividing of people into a minority that sits at the top and a majority that doesn't. No masters and slaves, no lords and serfs, no employers and employees. Instead, The idea is to bring to the workplace, the enterprise, whether it's a factory, an office, or a store, a completely different organization, not a dichotomy between master-slave, lord serf employer-employee, but a community of equals, a democratized workplace, where everybody who's present and involved in the production of goods and services is equal. Each person, one vote, and the decisions, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the output that everyone has helped to produce, all of these things are to be decided with a majority vote democratically. In other words, the employee-employer relationship of capitalism is brought to an end, not to be replaced by another dichotomy. So it's not like overcoming slavery but replacing it with feudalism or overcoming feudalism and replacing it with capitalism. No, this time the idea is and Marx was crystal clear about this, you're going to reorganize the production process, thereby making the economic system democratic. And Marx enjoyed the irony of explaining to his audiences that the reason that you got rid of kings in the revolution that brought capitalism in Uh, to overcome feudalism the reason you got rid of kings was you didn't need them and you didn't want them and you were convinced that democracy in the political sphere was a better way to live but the irony Marx pointed to them was you didn't really kill them they were clever they moved they changed their name and we now call them ceos They are the kings inside capitalist enterprises. They're the people who sit at the top, unaccountable to the mass of the people whose lives, whose jobs, whose incomes they hold in their hand. And that the same end of monarchy in the political sphere has to function and arrive in the economic sphere as well, and that that's what socialism is is all about. I'll stop here, because if I don't, I'll go on forever. But beyond that, um, the early experiments, Soviet, Chinese, and others, were imperfect efforts to move in that direction. And they might be worth discussing, if you're interested, um, why they were imperfect, how they were imperfect, and what lessons are or aren't being drawn Uh, by the socialists around the world. One last point, everyone should be aware that having this discussion in the United States involves a number of great peculiarities. Marx died in 1883, so it's not even 140 years since his death. But his way of thinking He was and remains the most important theorist of the Marxian tradition. I mean, there are many who came after him, but he remains a towering influence, much as the ideas of Adam Smith and Ricardo play something like that role in uh, mainstream economics. Marxism and socialism spread over these last 140 years to every single country on the face of this planet. Every country has Marxist and or socialist political parties, newspapers, uh, trade unions, social movements, journals, television programs, I mean, it's everywhere. Very few comparable examples in the history of the human race of a set of ideas spreading so fast in historical time to so vast a geographic spread. And since the countries to which Marxism found it so easy to migrate included cultures at very different levels of development and likewise politics and likewise economics, it is, of course, the case that this is a tradition that the interpretations of Marx are multiple, ditto for socialism, Anyone who speaks of Marxism in the singular, uh, as if it were one set of ideas, is either poorly informed or misleading his audience or her audience. Uh, It is simply not that way. I wish it might be simpler to explain, but it is a rich, diverse uh, tradition. And it also means that every single human society has found it meaningful to engage with Marx's ideas. Why are we unique in the United States? Because we are just now a little bit like a bear coming out of hibernation, emerging from being in a position, the Cold War, in which everything having to do with Marxism, socialism, communism was demonized. It was the ultimate evil. I remember in my college uh, years and my graduate school years looking at the fear written on my professors' faces when I asked questions about Marxism or socialism. Teachers who were good teachers, by the way, didn't want to go there, either didn't know the answer or more likely had an answer, but didn't want to be known uh, on the campus as somebody who knew a lot about, had spent time with, had learned about Marxism or socialism. So be, be kind to yourselves, those of you that are Americans. It's not your fault that these things are murky and unworked out is worse in this country than almost anywhere on earth. Most other countries, socialists are everywhere. They're part of the life of the society and they have been for a long time. Nothing particularly scary is associated with them. But Americans are not like that. A growing number are open and I'm grateful for it and excited by it. But we still have to remember our history. And to illustrate it, let me close. I'm sure everyone listening knows about the country called Portugal. It's an old, established European country. But I wonder how many of you know that the government of Portugal, which was first elected in 2016 and then massively re-elected last year, 2020, is a coalition of three political parties that have been around Portugal, in some cases, for many, many decades. Here's the coalition, and I'll embarrass no one by asking who knew it and who didn't. The dominant member of the three-party coalition is the Portuguese Socialist Party. The second largest member of the three-party coalition is the Portuguese Communist Party. And the third partner in the three-party coalition is the Portuguese Green Party. I'm not describing a fantasy. I'm not talking about Russia or China. I'm talking about Portugal. And I wonder how many of you understand that for much of the government of Angela Merkel in Germany, she was the chancellor, not because her party won a majority, it didn't. It was because her party, a conservative party, was in a coalition with the German Socialist Party. Americans don't know about this, don't understand it, and have a hard time in a way other people do not, and that's not anyone's fault. It is a product of the history we've lived. So let me stop there.
0: Thank oh, you man. so much.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Um,
1: God, there's so many, so many things, Professor Wolf. Um, <laughs> I want to say. <laughs> Well, so but we wanted to well okay i'm actually wondering because we wanted to try to jump into the that the mental health question but yeah. I actually there's a couple i don't know there's a couple angles that actually don't go directly there i kind of want to um touch on if you're okay with it harriet to ask him something um unless you feel a burning desire to shift into the i well let's see
0: well, let's see. Why don't you do, ask your thing okay,
1: yeah, okay, okay. So it's a well. it's a mi- it's a minor, brief personal story that connects directly to mental health and the therapy field, Good. And, and and capitalism, anti-capitalism, perhaps. So, where when I finished grad school, getting a master's in clinical psychology, and then I, I went to my clinical training site, and I worked in cl- in, in community mental health for five years. Uh, all the other trainees and licensed therapists and psychologists all the, all the time. It was just complaining all the time about the work. Um, I had some influence from people in my lives that, that, that made me think, Oh, we need to unionize the workplace. Right. Now you didn't, you didn't mention unions in your description of capitalism. Right. But it's, you know, it's, 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 it's throughout that whole history. So, you know, unions and socialism have always gone hand in hand. Um, and so, so for years I tried, it was like banging my head against a wall Um, For a lot of reasons, probably historical reasons, as you describe about how, you know, essentially, again, you didn't use this term class consciousness, but class consciousness is very low in the U.S. And an understanding of what, um, uh, of of why we can basically do better if we unite as workers within an individual workplace is like not, it's not a common sense idea, I think, for most Americans, unfortunately. Um, or, or it's just really scary. So anyway, um, that was something I tried to do for a few years. And then I had uh, a friend who was a, a, a PhD sociology candidate who handed me your book, um, uh, Democracy at Work. And then I started thinking about that. Um, I think the distinction you made earlier about the, if you sort of were able to dissolve the employee-employer uh, relationship and you had, you know, the economy... Uh, more constructed out of a sort of giant federation of worker cooperatives, that would be what some would call socialism as well. Mm-hmm. And as I engaged, I, I moved from, okay, instead of this sort of agitation-based, let's unionize the workplace, it was like, well, what if we just sort of, if we just negotiated with the employers to um, to just democratize it in a, maybe in a more cooperative way somehow? And this is a nonprofit. This isn't a, a for-profit um, workplace. But even then, I, I found that not only the workers, but the managers were just like, look, just, just, do your, just shut up and do your job, you know, yeah. right? Just like, why are you even, who cares? Like, why are you so concerned about the structure of the workplace? And, and what, you know, who, you know, just shut up and do your job, right? As if it were a fa- an Amazon factory, right? But this is psychotherapy uh, in, a, in, a, in a trauma, uh, a, a, a child abuse trauma clinic. Right, where the manager said, "Shut up and do your job." Right. So, to my dismay, I found even in the, in a place where you have people who I would think are you know pretty highly educated, they care a lot about people. Um, we want to help children. We um, presumably we care about not only the people we're serving, but we you know care about the working conditions. Um, that I'd found that it didn't seem like there was a huge interest in either unionizing or talking about worker cooperatives. Um, and so this segues into not just the, it's a sort of twofold mental health question, right? Because I think, uh, the first phone conversation I had with Harriet roughly a year ago, we both really agreed that in our field, in the mental health field, there seems to be this, uh, the default position is this extremely depoliticized or apolitical, um, sort of positionality w- with, among therapists. Mm-hmm. And, and we thought, well, let's, yeah, let's do a podcast and see if we can you know, get some therapists to listen and see if they, if we can change their minds or something like that. Why is it that you think, um, and if you feel like you're not an expert enough on this or something, why do you think in the mental health field, you know, that's kind of risen the last few decades. And when we talk about the mental health impacts of maybe a capitalist system on, on people, why is it that the people that do the work in the mental health field would have such a disinterest and maybe engaging in the kinds of topics you just described to us why would that be so difficult for people whose whose focus is you know making people feel better when 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 everything you just described right that 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 presumably if you could actually get more empowerment and control for those who where they go every day to work right people who work you know 8 hours a day mm-hmm. so you know 5 days a week Instead of assuming that if we change the structure of the workplace and the economy, that people's maybe mental health would get better, of almost refusing outright to even think about that, and just to think, well, let's just go to individuals and teach them how to like do deep breathing or, or think about their childhoods or whatever, right? Not to not to throw our field under the bus, but I mean, if just if you have
2: any comments on like why why is that so? Sure, you know one of the greatest of. Uh... Marx's disciples, if you like, people who came after him and used his work, was a Hungarian uh, thinker named Georg. That's the Hungarian equivalent of George Lukács. And he devoted one of his greatest works to an analysis of the term common sense because he felt in his own work as a socialist Um, And he was a government official for a while in a socialist government in Hungary, in Budapest. Um, He felt that common sense was the condensed effect on human beings of living in a certain context. That if you are subject to a whole set of very specific rules, for example, in a place that's majorly important to you, like the workplace five days a week, the best hours of the day, etc. If you are subject to a regimen there, then that regimen will have an outsized influence on those set of ideas we come to call common sense. And that common sense will become a barrier to anything that proposes another way of being or another way of seeing the world or another way of thinking. And then you get this contradiction that leads to your question, why are these ideas so foreign, strange, or unacceptable, whereas these other ones appear to be normal, routine, i.e. common sense? So with that in the background, here's a phrase you hear in the United States more than anywhere else on Earth. Do something, here we go now, in a business-like manner. What? Why should you do a whole lot of things that aren't business in a business-like manner? Why is the business the model that others are supposed to follow? I'm not surprised at all by what you say about the mental health field. I think they're following a business model. In the business world, let me be real clear here, the business employer, the owner, the employer of the business, wants very determinedly to keep in his or her hands all the key decisions. The mass of employees are excluded from them. And therefore, in your mental health clinic, it's common sense for who was ever in charge to remind you of what he or she thinks is the normal business-like model, which is you shut up, do what you are told for the 40 hours we pay you, and then go home and get ready for the next 40 hours we pay you for. Uh, Follow the rules. I've spent my whole life, to make it personal, in academia, in a university. First, I went to school there for 10 years, and then I've been a professor ever since. The university is an institution that began in feudal Europe when it was completely differently organized from the way it is today. I have watched in my lifetime the power, the prerogative, the shaping of what goes on in the university to be systematically taken away from the professors, the teachers, like me, and gathered up into the hands of a much smaller group called the administrators, uh, whose hierarchy concentrates in the hands of the provost or the chancellor or the president, a, a power comparable to what CEOs got. And I notice that the salaries mimic the same model, Professors get much, much, much less than the administrator. We who do the teaching, ostensibly what the university is about, have been demoted, devalued, and basically uh, rendered into hired workers, which for many uh, professors is a troubling confrontation with a reality they'd rather not see. So I think what you're, what you're facing and what has to be faced is that Marx was right to focus our attention on the organization of production. Not only because it is a key part of any society uh, in the world, but because its forms, its relationships have an outsized shaping influence on all the other relationships in the society, in the other institutions, in the other organizations, in the family, in the household, in the church, in the social club. Um, The impact of the inequalities and the dysfunctionality, in the end, of capitalism cannot be overstated. And in the United States which is just waking up from its Cold War hibernation, discovering this is a major part of catching up to all that was lost and missed because of the Cold War.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important because the ramifications emotionally are, in the emotional life of a business, you have an idea of what you want other people to do to produce wealth for you, and you want to discount their contribution. And if you look at family structure, our family structure began in feudal in uh, capitalism, and then you look at social relationships. You see how one of the huge businesses of America is advertising so everyone knows that they're constantly lied to so someone else can get make money. Mm. And the model of listening to almost every program or looking at the bus ads or looking at the highway ads or looking at any other ads or or listening to them or picking up the phone when someone's scamming you by pushing something is people are out to cheat you and get your money and you have to look at them with a the jaundiced eye what do they want to get out of me? And what can I get out of them? And I'm very impressed with that ideology as it applies to romance in America. More and more people, when they start getting interested in a partner, look at their credit rating because they don't want to get engaged with somebody who will siphon off their wealth because they have too many debts. They also think Okay, which is the best one? They thumb through all the um, ads that they see to pick out which one they think is the best. And then when they go out with someone, they think, well, is there somebody better out there? Can I get a better product? Mm -hmm. Now, one of the disputes is among rural people where there are many fewer choices, they actually are forced to get to know one another more. And to see, is this a person I might want to spend a lot of time with, even maybe the rest of my life, because they have fewer choices. It's not like, well, this one's pretty and funny, but maybe I can find another one. Leaf through the ads, get somebody else. There's an omnipresent sense that you should get the most for yourself while hedging your bets and not giving much. Mm. And that influences every aspect of our society, even the services we receive. If you call plumber, electrician, any other practitioner, you're likely to get somebody who would rip you off, who will think, how can I do the fastest thing possible and get paid, take the money and run, Mm -hmm. which is really a way of making everything break down. In France, when the university employees go on strike, they collect their money for every day of work, but they do only what's on their job description. And the whole thing doesn't work because it depends on a willingness, an extra, an identification with the work, an identification with who's asking you. And so it all breaks down. And what's happening in America now, I think, as it's breaking down, as the middle class hardly exists and is breaking down as relationships between people are breaking down even in intimate relationships don't last the majority of kids are brought up with people who weren't their original parents and don't have consistency since we don't have consistent child care after school care and other benefits countries with socialist influences have, that there is an emotional breakdown and people are terribly lonely. Mm -hmm. And our field is trained to address the loneliness, the pain, without addressing some of the social causes, only looking at the personal causes, which are one aspect of a complexity and should be taken into consideration. But then there are the social causes, gender, caste, um, Mm -hmm. race, and the economic causes, poverty, wealth, and so on. And so our field, which is very American, psychology really burgeoned in America and then became more medicalized as happiness was defined biologically and addressed by expensive pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. but there is a sense in our field that better not look at the other things. That's dangerous. Stick to one, one aspect of the complexity of an individual, and don't you know, leave that.
1: You know, there's a there's a funny irony. There's this guy named Martin Seligman, who's they call him the father of positive psychology, which. Um, I, I, I I'm not a huge fan of it's it's um it looked at uh it said why why in psychology do we not actually instead of just studying what makes people miserable what actually makes people happy and joyful and all that so they, they created this whole field of let's study sure. what makes people feel good you know um which is which is a, a cool idea but the the actual what actually inspired Martin Seligman the psychologist he was the head of the uh the APA for a while he did this study that became kind of famous. It's in like usually psych one hundred and one textbooks. It's about um, learned helplessness, and it's a really it's kind of a messed up study. But it had to do with putting a dog in a cage with shocks at the bottom of the cage. And what they would do is they'd have, um, you know, a control and an experiment where they'd have the dog in the cage where they could jump through a little hole to a different area, and and so when they when they turned the shocks on and it shocked the dog's feet, it wasn't like torture. It was just kind of uncomfortable. And the dog would jump, you know, through the hole and they'd get to the other side. And then, okay, great. Now I can go eat my food and live my life as this happy little dog. But then they had the experiment side of it was, let's just do it so where there is no hole. And they're kind of trapped in there with the shocks. And it's like, always makes me sad to even think about. But what they found long-term was that the dogs who, um, after like, I don't know how many shocks it was, three, five, 10 shocks, and there was no hole. Eventually they didn't respond to the shocks anymore. They just accepted that I guess my feet are gonna get shocked. And eventually they, they observed and like the dog's heads would hang, hang lower and they, they would start to ex- like just dis- display body language that you would look, if you looked at a human being, you'd say that person's depressed. They're obviously depressed, right? Um, and so this, this became what they called the study, the, the, the learned helplessness theory of depression. Mm -hmm. That human beings who are in situations that make them feel helpless can develop what we call clinical depression. So everything you just said, Harriet, plus everything that Professor Wolf had just said, you know, makes me think in the context of capitalism, whether you think it's in a single workplace or if we just kind of zoom out and look at a whole economy, where if you have no control over where you work you know the, the 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 those those lovely descriptions you have, Professor Wolf, of what you produce, where you produce, et cetera, et cetera. If you have the less control you have, the more helpless you become within this economic context. I, I could see that actually becoming like a sociologically normative, depressive situation, right? For a lot of people, to to kind of bring it back to the mental health piece, that if we if you um, this this idea of one one worker, one vote, right? Where anyone can just propose anything. I propose that we all work five hours less per week, or I propose right. that we all get a $2 raise because we've all been transparently informed that the the surplus is this much for the year or whatever, right? right? So we, we all get more of a stipend. In that kind of environment, I'm sure there's all kinds of problems, and whether it's worker co-ops or an entire economy based on worker co-ops or other maybe quote-unquote socialist forms, but in our current form, Again, even thinking back to the clinic I was describing or whether it's like a McDonald's or, or a law firm, I mean, it probably doesn't matter what kind of uh, workplace it is, I-, I could see someone developing clinical depression and other so-called um, you know, mental illnesses or mental disorders if, if their daily life is, um, and especially once they accept it, this is the thing that's kind of sad, right? If you just, you start to just think it's normal that like, okay, I get up at this early hour, I go to this place I don't really like very much. Um, on the way I see all these advertisements, which I know are fake, and they actually piss me off, and they're really annoying. Like, I don't need that stupid shit they're trying to sell me, and I don't know why they're trying to make me feel bad about my body image by showing me this unrealistically skinny person or whatever. And then you get to work, and you have no control over anything. I could really just see people, you know, and, and so in the mental health field, when we say, oh, this individual has depression, and we're not really thinking, like, well, could there be, like you said, Harriet, could there be social factors of why... So many people are coming to us with depression and anxiety and PTSD and all these kinds of things. But for some reason, in our field, I think we're not. It's not like we're not allowed to, but uh, you know, they. We're not trained. We're not, not trained, trained, but also, also, that I think the the question, the the difficulty for us is, well, what would we do about it? Right, as therapists, social workers, whatever, in the quote unquote helping professions, I think if we've been taught almost hegemonically to think. Well, the, um, the focal point of helping is within individuals. It's You don't look at structures and systems. You don't get mm-hmm. involved in membership mm-hmm. associations or political parties. That's not really – that doesn't help people. That's just – That's just like boring, or that's just a bunch of extra work, or something, right? You, you know, you got to sit down with people, and you like you listen to them, and you do the breathing, and you do the like. Well, what did your, you know, what's what's the traumatic memory? And like that's the that's the focal point of help, I think. Unfortunately, which which I should say is helpful, right? What we do is helpful, but it, it is it is a it's a it's troubling that it's the only. The only way we look at these things. How it is. You know,
2: if, if I also, could, it, we
0: can help politically. We can say you need to connect with other people who believe as you do. That's right in right. mental health. I'm sorry, Rick, you were trying to say no, something. No, no, mm-hmm.
2: that's exactly where I was about to go myself, which mm-hmm. is um, early on in uh, Marx's major work, which is called Capital, has three volumes. Early in volume one, there's a very famous section, Which is entitled in a sort of mysterious language, The Fetishism of Commodities. And it is a very, it's very short, you know, a few pages, in which Marx takes a moment away from the economic analysis to do something pretty close to your field. Mm -hmm. And here's what he does he says, one of the mechanisms, whereby capitalism keeps itself going is by inculcating in the working class, the employees, very specific ways of thinking about the world, about themselves, about work, uh, because capitalism has learned that you better do that because if you don't, then ways of thinking may emerge that are contradictory To capitalism and cause all kinds of problems. And then he gives an example. In capitalism, already in Marx's time, and this is equally true now, there's a notion that we as human beings are governed by an unchangeable reality. uh, That there is an institution, And the one Marx uses as the example is the market that is simply a reality, sort of like the clouds in the sky or the variability of temperature or something else natural in the sense of permanent. And this market uh, has power and you better understand it and adjust to it uh, because that's it there's nothing you can do about it and Marx then plays with this idea by saying it's as if human beings were controlled by by markets and markets are places where we exchange commodities I give you potatoes you give me shirts I give you my ability to work you give me a wage it's an exchange location a market it's all it ever was But Marx says, no, 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 and then he does something which is so modern, it kind of takes your breath away. He says sentences that are like what you can hear any day now in the discourses of the House of Representatives or the Senate in Washington, when one or another of those people say something like the following, well, we should let the market decide, Mm -hmm. what? This is an anthropomorphization of the market. Mm-hmm. The market is the best determiner of this or that. We should not undo or interfere in the mar- And Marx takes a step back and shocks us by saying... What the hell are you talking about? The market is a human institution. For most of the history of the human race, goods were distributed not by market exchange. And those societies existed perfectly nicely for eons. It's a relatively modern invention. It's a human institution. It's therefore subject to being born, evolving and dying like every other human institution. And you are, and then again, he uses a metaphor that's fantastic. He says, you're doing what Mary Bish Shelley did when she wrote that Mm. famous novel, Frankenstein because that novel does what capitalism does it creates something namely the monster and then feels as though it's the monster who dominates it rather than it the mo- it's allowing its own creation to become its domination And that's what capitalism does. It allows the institution of the market, which it has taken over from previous systems and modified, to become a kind of master to which we must bow down. And then Marx ridicules it. But here's the mental health implication. A lot of that depression you talk about, Max, has to do with what Harriet said, in my view. Namely, with people who don't anymore understand the power and agency they actually still have, Mm -hmm. but have for at least for a while given up on. But the good news is what they gave up on, they could, with help, recover.
0: I think that's really important. Because I think one of the reasons that a lot of people don't want to see that they've been exploited is that the idea, which was so trumpeted by Trump, that you're either a winner or a loser. And if you're a winner, you make your own rules and you don't really have to look at what's going on because you're you as an individual triumph. And people don't look at, wait a minute, he's this self-made man. whose father gave him $214 million and he lost most of it, but he still managed to do something through cheating. Is, wait, wait a minute, is this self-made? That whole idea, self-made man, as if you were your own creation when you're not. And so people want to think of themselves as winners, not losers, and they don't want to see they've been exploited, Was I a sucker? Was I a loser that I accepted a wage when I don't have to? That I believed in a market when it wasn't there? And people who've been dominated since infancy and children in the United States, unlike a lot of their European compatriots, are brought up by these omnipotent and often unjust giants struggling in their own lives who are not interested in knowing them as people or empowering them. And particularly this is true of evangelical Christians. 81% of evangelical Christians follows Donald Trump, and that's in part because they are brought up in even greater dictatorships. Focus on family, which is their ideological family vehicle, believes in breaking the child's will, in harsh punishments, so parents are not even benevolent dictators. And children's rebellion against injustice goes inside. They hate the other in themselves, the bad child, which then they project onto black people, on uppity women, on anyone who says no and rebels, and turn on them as Trump is always turning on someone and they express their hatred for whatever little agency they had as children, which was labeled as an eminence of the devil. So all of these things combine in the American system and people are afraid to admit they've been what they think of as losers or dupes rather than They've grown up, they don't understand that you are also a social creation and that they've been brought up in a socially deforming environment from the family
2: on. If I I could just add to what Harriet said, because it it wraps back up to something that I, I tried to get at before. If you remember my example, that when you go and you look for a job and you get paid your $20 an hour, that... The reality is that the employer gives you 20 because the employer understands that in every hour of your working uh, at the desk he assigns you to with the machines he gives you and the raw materials for you to work on and the task you to perform, that you're going to add more than $20 worth of stuff for him to sell. In other words, what you give your employer has to be greater than what he gives To you, when you understand that, and somewhere, I would argue, and you folks know better than I do, but I would argue that somewhere all workers know this. It's Mm -hmm. not that complicated. They kind of know. And Mm -hmm. that part of them that knows this is then going to clash If I can use the phrase, and if I'm not misunderstanding (laughs) it, there's some sort of cognitive dissonance going on here. Correct. Between between what they kind of know on the one hand and what they have, for example, told themselves all their Mm -hmm. lives. Something like this. I'm never going to work for anyone who doesn't pay me what I'm worth. Yes, They don't understand that in this system that's never going to happen. That's -hmm. that's no more available to you than leaping over the Empire State Building is if you practice running and jumping a lot. It's just Mm -hmm. not that you have to change the system. Mm -hmm. You cannot solve this social situation with Mm -hmm. some personal exertion. That's not what's going on but but it seems to me that therein lies a s- mental dilemma how does each man and woman square their th- the sense of themselves they want to have they need to have mm-hmm. they seek to have on the one hand with the reality however much obfuscated by propaganda and rationalizations how do they square What they need as human beings with what they are subjected to in the way this system is organized. It makes you understand why that bar has that sign outside that you pass on your way home from work each day. The sign that says, come on in, it's happy hour time. As if to underscore what the hours at work weren't. (laughs) Well, there's, yeah, another, this makes me think too,
1: Harriet, when you mentioned the family that, so I, I kind of wonder how is it when you mentioned Portugal, Professor Wolf, and um, you could think of countless other European countries and, I don't know, South American, the South American countries that haven't been completely, I don't know, you know, co-op, you know, CIA, you know, all that, all that stuff, right? All the inter- intervention stuff. But but how is it that you have, let's say you have two hypothetical cultures they're not even so hypothetical you have one culture where people realize um yes i'm an individual but i'm also part of a collective yes my family unit is a collective but also there's this larger collective outside of the family and and then they zoom out from there and say well there's again these membership organizations or political parties or whatever their their thing is um that i'm a part of that and 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 we're we're gonna address the system through that and then you have another culture that um It's either, you know, at the smallest level, it's just, I'm just an individual, period, and I never think beyond that. Or you might go a layer up from there and say, well, I got my family and that's the collective. And um, I work my job to throw the money into the pool of the family to protect them, to help them, to put the mortgage down for the house, to have the kids, to pay for their college. And that's, you know, that's about the, that's the collective effort I'm willing to put in, right, my family, the family unit and Harriet and I have addressed a couple times of how like you know somehow the american political right has sort of monopolized this family thing you know saying like it family values is a right wing thing which is you don't need to go down that route but it's it's absurd um but how is it that um cuz i think there actually is a of ra- semi rational sentiment in the us sometimes like when i think of one a coworker at that clinic i was at where I was having what we call in the union organizing world a one-on-one with this this um this coworker asking about the union stuff and she said you know I, you know I know they don't pay us great here but I'm just trying to get my hours so I can do private practice so I can make decent money you know, to raise a family, you know, with my, with my boyfriend, we're going to get married and have kids. And then another coworker friend was saying something really similar. And I was thinking, okay, so that actually does make sense. And I'm not going to tell you, well, screw that. You shouldn't <laughs> look out for yourself to raise your family or something. You got to fight for the union and take risks for the people or something. That'd be an absurd, obscene thing to say to somebody. But yeah. it it, did, it it does occur to me that there, that, that sentiment is kind of asserting it, it's setting a boundary around saying like, oh, again, the collective is my family. And that's as far as my sort of collective consciousness will go or my class consciousness. Um, And I, you know, you couldn't really convince me to partake in anything to try to change the system because the system as I see it, is my family. Right. And I'm, you know, I mean, how is that? Is that a uniquely American thing? How, where, where did that come from of like, Protecting, fighting for, identifying with the family, and that—that is the collective, so to speak. Does that make sense? Well, I I certainly
0: know where that came from because the history of the family is a history that was documented by a guy named Jacques Donzello D O N Z E L O T, who very carefully documented this. Rather, uh, it's difficult to read because it's not exactly meant to entertain, but. It carefully documents it in one country, in France, and the model can be generalized, which is that when the French Revolution against feudalism happened, the mass of people were in poverty and chaos, everything broke down, the feudal system broke down, they went to the towns, there was nothing there for them, there wasn't much work. The marriages that had been determined by the feudal head of the feudal family didn't happen. People were screwing around with each other. Women had no protection in pregnancy. Kids were abandoned and mistreated. It was a mess. And during the French Revolution, there was a strong participation by children and a strong demand that the state take over rearing children and support rearing children. And so after the revolution when the only people left with money were the remnants of the feudal aristocracy and the Catholic church, which had vast holdings and feudal lands as well as other wealth and the new bourgeois, the new capitalists who were hiring these feudal serfs who were coming to town and needed to make a living. And they decided quite consciously, we will create a feudal family. The father will be the head of the feudal family. He can boss around his wife and and kids. The wife has much lesser rights and he is the feudal head of the family, the way the father used to be the head of all his children on feudal estates. The wife will get protection in pregnancy and childbirth and the children are chattel and can be used By who, by their parents, however they want them to. So the wife gets a little something in the use of her children and protection in pregnancy. The man gets the authority and he is responsible. And they didn't give jobs to anyone who didn't have either a dependent wife and children or a dependent wife with children on the way to force, economically force this family form and to force that man to be responsible for the welfare of his family and that woman's job to be her family. And so that it was a very capitalist institution and it worked. If you don't give families any other real support and the United States is very backward in that compared to France, the Scandinavian countries, Germany, Switzerland, etc., So you Force that form of the family, which is breaking down, leaving nothing in the United States. It's really breaking down, and we don't have the social supports. But that's where that idea came from. It enforces a capitalist structure. And so we would need, and if you notice the right wing, in spite of the fact that they sentimentally endorse family, they will never fight for maternity leaves, paternity leaves, family vacations, time off, personal time off for families, or any public health care, public child care, after school and summer care for children. And so the burden is all put on the wage earners and usually on the wage earning male who makes more.
1: But why would that be so much stronger in the U.S.? Like that, when you, you know, if you think from feudalism to now, because feudalism, you know, was so strong in Europe. You know, Europe is where the, you know, sort of the center of the, you know, feudal world from our, you know, even from the U.S. history legacy, right? Like how, how is it that the U.S., like we have this idea of like the family, that's it, that's the unit and screw everything else. But in Europe, you don't, obviously, you know, you could talk to all kinds of people in Europe. They're like, yeah, my family's number one but you, they're also a lot more likely to be identified with something beyond the fam- a collective that's beyond the family. Right. And, and it's not necessarily like a nationalist kind of collective. I mean, there's that too. Well,
0: I think it, well, the- it's because I'm sorry, Rick, I'll just say uh, this and then sure. it's your turn. I think it's because until the mid to late 1970s, every generation did better than the last for their own family. As long as they had a white male in charge mm-hmm. a white male salary, which was a family wage. Europe didn't have that. They never had that. People needed to band together. They couldn't make it on their own. They couldn't make it if they really try on their own. They had to join together. And so they're much more socialistic, much more communal. They couldn't improve their lives without one another. And American exceptionalism created an exception and feudalism wasn't dead. It was always alive in the family, but in the outside world, white male led families and white males could make it. And we used to be an 85% white country. We're not anymore, but you know, and that whole system has broken down for Americans and American males. Okay, Rick, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, not
2: not a problem. Max, I I would urge you not to give up so much. In other words, yes, of course, you're not going to tell the person you're speaking to that her family doesn't count and she should be be involved in other things (laughs) uh, for obvious reasons, and I I agree with you about that. But here's something you might want to think about, that your role— which might not be as much as you wish you could do at this moment, but we have to face the reality, Mm -hmm. your role may be more modest, that what you have to do is help this person you're talking to, that woman that you mentioned, to to emerge from the hibernation I talked about, to emerge Mm -hmm. from the last 70 years. And, And let's be clear, the working class of America was told, if you go to a political meeting of your union, of a socialist movement, of a group of people handing out a leaflet protesting something, you can get into very serious trouble. You can be arrested. You can be hounded by the police. You can lose your job. You can be etc. 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 And even if it didn't happen to you, you know someone uh, to whom it happened. Let's be fair to ourselves. For 70 years, Americans were, and there's no nicer way to say this, terrorized, terrorized about anything radical, left of center. You know, the use of the the, the dirty word communist was thrown about, as it still is in large parts of this country, without any care for whether it's accurate or not or what it even means, Uh, but it functioned as a terror word. Being called that name, you know, when when Bernie began running in 2016 and didn't shy from the label socialist, all of the people around him told him he was committing political suicide, that you couldn't possibly uh, run as a socialist. Something every European country does as a matter of course for decades now without the slightest problem. Mm. But it was said that the United States, you couldn't do. Well, he proved that you could. He proved it in 2016. He proved it again in 2020 when millions upon millions of Americans didn't have the slightest problem voting for a socialist, you know, and and others are showing that all over the country uh, with each passing election. Uh, I think what you need to do, and I would urge this on you, this is what I do. You explain to that woman, you know, I understand that you're prioritizing the family, but you know as well as I do that what everything you're trying to do for that family can be and often is undone by social events that could frustrate you. you it's not a, a, whether you should or shouldn't attend to them, but you're very concerned with your spouse, your children, the elderly in your home, mm-hmm. or whatever, however you define your family. Mm-hmm. Let me give the example that is so obvious now. Our economic system, we're one of the richest countries in the world. Mm. We have one of the most well-developed health industries in the world. And yet, even though the United States has 4% of the world's population, we account for 20% of the world's COVID deaths. Hundreds of thousands of families lost somebody over the last 15 months. That didn't have to happen. In countries much poorer than us, with less developed health industries, they didn't have anything like this experience. Yeah. And so, you could have worked really hard to, to to build a good, warm, nurturing family for your grandmother, but she's dead now because of social situations and your children are having a very hard time navigating 15 months out of the classroom unable to play with their peers uh mm-hmm. with consequences it'll take us years to sort out let alone compensate for i mean if you don't take participation in the larger society it's going to come and bite you in a in your rear end it, mm-hmm. it i mean you can choose to not involve yourself mm. in in this, but let's not pretend that you're not needing to. Uh, you may you may not be able to do more, but at least at least then you might get her appreciation for the people who do get involved in fighting mm-hmm. for Medicare for all or something else, because she mm-hmm. can then see based on the conversation that that's in her interest too. And she becomes a supporter, even if not an activist. Right. Good point.
1: All right, I love it. That's a good. I wanted to ask you because I don't. I mean, I could go on longer, but I think we we might want to consider closing. Yeah. Um, we we could you know we could do we could have a continued uh, piece another time, but I I, I, w- I wanted to ask you, Professor Wolf, too, on, on maybe in that vein of like, you know, the what is to be done question, but may, maybe from a from a personal. You know, perspective. So, for listeners, assuming there are some listeners who maybe have not heard uh, your uh, your descriptions, uh, you know, the 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 wonderful uh, the earlier part, right, from slavery to feudalism to capitalism to okay, what about this whole socialism thing? What can people actually do in their everyday lives to? because there's there's a very abstract maybe in your mind you support the idea of socialism or you now have a maybe positive sentiment toward the word socialism, but um, do you think that's enough right now? That there's just a sort of there could even just be a more passive or uh, a passive acceptance or um, positive sentiment toward these ideas. Do you think there are more specific activities that listeners should be engaging in to support? Uh, the
2: advancement of socialism? Well, I, I think that um, the answer is going to betray my age. <laughs> I, I was born in Ohio. I've lived all my life in the United States, worked all my life here. Um, the, the prognosis for socialism has never been better than it is today in my lifetime. Uh, the interest in it, the openness to it, the willingness to hear it, Think about it. Not everybody agrees. I, I don't expect it, and it's not the case. But the ability to talk to people about it has never been uh, greater than it is today. And I think that, that leads me to my first request of people, which is talk. Talk to the people around you. Be be willing to engage, even if you have to start it, in a conversation about the injustices of this system, about the reasonableness of responding to them by at least yearning for something better, by not giving up. It's like the slave talking to the slave next to him or her who says, well, we're slaves, we're born slaves, we'll die. Sla-. Well, even if you believe that, wouldn't it be better if we could do this, if we were free to do that? If our... No one's going to argue with you Mm-hmm. It's a, it's like breaking the ice in a conversation when you first meet someone, only this is a person you know, but maybe you've never dared to have this kind of a conversation. And I think you'll discover that people are at all different stages. Mm. Some of them are at the very beginning. This will be an, a, an amazing new conversation. Others of them are going to say, I know all of that, but there's nothing you can do. And they need you to give them something concrete to do because their ideas are already there, but they just don't see how to activate them. Here's a couple of things, and then I'll stop. The first one is to make it real. In other words, the the socialism I spoke to you about a few minutes ago, uh, The notion of a a workplace that was organized democratically, one person, one vote, and all the decisions are made by everyone together, a community rather than a hierarchy, which is the way capitalism uh, organizes it. That's not just a a lovely idea for a distant future. That's a reality now. I'm I'm going to give you two examples. In the north of Spain is a medium-sized city called Mondragón. And there, in, in the 1950s, 70 years ago, a Roman Catholic priest named Father Arizmendi uh, gave a speech to his little parish. Uh, he said, if we wait for employers to come here and provide jobs, we'll all die of old age before it happens. Everybody giggled, and then he, then he gave them the punchline. I think we don't wait anymore. We become our own employers and we become employer and employee simultaneously. In effect, Father Arismendi, under the umbrella of the Roman Catholic Church, and remember Spain is a Catholic country, uh, established a worker co-op. Okay, it's 1956. The priest and six workers set this up. Today, the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, which you can find about out about by Googling it, uh, lots of information. Mm-hmm. Is the seventh largest corporation in Spain. It's got over 100,000 employees. It is a family of about 200 worker co-ops, all of which, not all of which, but most of which run in this democratic one worker, one vote way. They've done it. They've grown spectacularly over 70 years. They've outcompeted dozens of capitalist firms that they showed they could produce better output at a lower cost than those capitalist firms do. They maintain their own university, the Mondragon University, which teaches how to set up a worker co-op, how to finance it, how to build it, how to grow it, how to solve the problems among workers when there's no hierarchy, all of those kinds of questions. They also have their own laboratories, where they are leaders in research. Two American corporations are so taken with the research done by this worker co-op that they pay the worker co-op to allow their American scientists to work in the Mondragon laboratories alongside them to pick up on their research. And you might be interested to know that the two American companies – are Microsoft and General Motors. So they understand the viability of worker co-ops. It's only ironic that working class people in America and even worse socialists among them don't. If you go then to Italy, in the area around Bologna in the north, it's called um, the- Emilia Romagna. uh, Yeah, Emilia Romagna district, uh, state, uh, region. 40%, 40 percent, 40, 40 percent of the economy of Emilia-Romagna is worker co-ops, and it's been that way for decades. Mm. They want it that way. The people of that area vote to keep the proportion 60-40 because they want to have, and Americans should love this, freedom of choice where young people can choose whether to work in a hierarchical capitalist enterprise or in a democratically run worker co-op. Shoppers can decide where uh, to to make their dollar purchases or their their euro purchases in in Italy, etc., etc. In the Bay Area of California, there's a, a group of bakeries who took the name of Father Arismendi from Mondragon and called themselves the Arismendi Bakeries, Pizza Cheese Shops, They started, uh, I think, 30 years or 40 years ago with one store. They now have five. They are a worker co-op. There's a a loaf of their bread in my kitchen right now. (laughs) All right, even better. Uh, (laughs) And they will gladly tell you all about how they operate, how they work, how they make their decisions. North of San Francisco is a a very famous bakery called the Alvarado Street Bakery, um, which is a a worker co-op. There's a, something called the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, which is a national organization with its own website, its own programs, its own teachings, how you can get. So this is not something that human beings haven't tried. Mm. They've tried it. It works. It's now a growing phenomena as people understand the growing catastrophes of capitalism, ecological and every other way, and I think people are are going to be moving in that direction and that the socialism of the 21st century will be as identified with the movement towards worker co-op as the 20th century version, the experimental version of the 20th century socialism, were fascinated by giving the state a lot of power to intervene. Mm-hmm. I think one of the lessons is mm-hmm. planning and state help is one thing. Giving the state too much power is something to be avoided, and giving real power to workers in their enterprises is a way to limit and control what the state can do. Socialism is growing and developing, and I think it's now possible to say to the American people, look, if the system you're in just came through one of its worst public health disasters, During which, and I'll end with this statistic, 82 million Americans over the last 15 months had to file for unemployment compensation. Some of them were only unemployed a few weeks. Some of them were unemployed the entire 15 months. But when you're unemployed, you have to use up whatever savings you had. The stresses and strains in your family and household life become all the greater the temptation of alcohol etc cetera, etc cetera, is worse all for understandable reasons that would be bad enough but let me add that during the same 15 months the 650 americans who are billionaires that is they own one or more billions of dollars collectively increased their wealth by almost 1 trillion dollars a system that condemns 82 million people, that's more than half the labor force of the United States. A system that in a public health disaster that we're supposed to all be involved with subjects the majority of its working class to real suffering while enriching the people who are already the richest people is a system that has lost all deserved support in the population so that I'm confident in a way I never was before that it's no longer a question of whether capitalism is falling apart. It's only a question of when.
0: That's a good place to end, I think. Yeah. And thank yeah. you. Thank you very much, Richard wolf Because it's very important to us and our listeners to have a sense that our mental health, is part of a a great complexity and is Mm. shaped and overdetermined and influenced by forces outside of our own families because our Mm. families themselves are shaped by social and political and economic forces. So that is really important. Thank you so much. I also wanted to say before we stop that a listener asked mm -hmm. me and I never responded because she's the second Mm -hmm. listener that asked, why do I say my clients instead of my patients? And that's because I don't want medicalization that somebody's sick because they have problems in life and therefore need a cure and are a patient as if a medical patient. That's why.
1: Oh, that's a good that's a good answer. I was going to say that I'm dissatisfied with both terms because I think client is a consumer relationship term, and so mm. whether it's medicalized mm. or capitalismized, it's both. Mm. Or I wish we had a different term, but we just don't at this time. So I'm I just want to say I feel screwed no matter how I refer <laughs> to the people that I that I help or whatever. But yeah, um, yeah thank you, Professor Wolfen. Actually, something we I. Forgot to do in the beginning that we normally do is just a, a big thank you and shout out to patrons. Uh, yeah. First, first, first winter, Sarah Turner, uh, Rebecca Johns, Justin Harper, and Baton, uh, Bandile, uh, M'si Le Msimanga. Uh, hope I said that right this time. <laughs> I know I checked in with you on Patreon, and Patreon, and you said I, I said it right in the recording. Um, Oh, and and Liam, of course. Thank you for the editing and social media. We we really couldn't do it without you. No, we. So couldn't. thank you. Or we and, um, couldn't do
0: without our patrons either, because we are in the capitalist system, and mm-hmm. we understand that not everyone can contribute. But we really yeah. are grateful for those who have.
1: Yeah, and we don't. Um, yeah, Harriet said this a few times. We don't. We don't really care if you if you chip in money or not. It's not. We're not like trying to get rich from it or anything. But it mm-hmm. does. I mean, primarily, I think it helps compensate Liam for the. I think it's it's hard work to do the editing and the mm-hmm. social media promotion, um, and we split it three ways. And also, so the more the more we get in the bigger pool, the more for him. And also, um, I mean, to me, it just sort of when we see that there's more supporters. To me, it, it it's more like psychological. It it says that there's a value to the conversations that we're producing and and airing on the internet. So I that's. Kind of how I see it, also, um, but I, we don't.
0: I do want to say, if you don't mm-hmm. contribute to Patreon, we understand, but do recommend yes. us, and so that right, we can right. expand our listener base. That's really important.
1: Yeah, and uh and share share the podcast with your therapist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, we want we want class consciousness in all 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 places, yes. um, and there. Just since we're in this field, uh we want others in the field to be thinking about this too. Hmm. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Professor Wolf. And um, we'll, we'll put those websites, I'll just say them out loud one more time and I'll put them in the li- link description as well. But Democracy at Work, all as like one word, no spaces, democracyatwork.info, and RD and that's with two Fs, so W O L F F.com, RD Those are two websites where you can look more extensively into Professor Wolf's work. And uh, just because I have read the book Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism, which I think is what, like three books ago, four books ago of of (laughs) what you've written, Professor Wolf, that was my starting point. I know you've written a few other, like just what is Marxism, you've written some sort of primers, right, on what is socialism, what is Marxism. I haven't read those, but I I plan to in the future. Um, The Democracy at Work one helped me, I think, wrap my head around some of the things he said earlier on about when you... um, well, anyway, it's it's like why why are co op socialism? Why are co ops a good idea? That's maybe right. the most brutal, concise summary of the book. <laughs> right. Um, yeah.
2: Well, it's so. it's been a it's been a pleasure to do this. Um, I like doing this. I like explaining this. And uh, if it's made a few f- people more interested, well, that's more than more than I could hope for. So I'm very glad about the opportunity. Good. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Okay. Goodbye, everybody.
2: Okay.
1: Bye, everybody. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head.
0: Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader overview. Overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20% of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head, and Capitalism Hits Home are definitely complementary.
1: And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it?
0: Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, HarrietFraud.com.